In this episode, I speak with Dean and Sarah. Dean is the founding and lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. He's the author of several books, and his latest book is called Pure. And it is on the topic of purity culture, which was a big thing in the 1990s. We'll explain more about that in the episode. But there has recently been a big pushback against this. And one of the things Dean is advocating for is that in our pushback against some of the bad parts of purity culture that may have existed, let's make sure that we don't also throw out the good biblical sexual ethic. Before we get into this episode, let me take the opportunity to invite you to the 2022 Calvary Chapel CGN International Conference taking place June 26th through 29th. Our theme this year is gospel culture, and I have the honor of being a main stage speaker, and also I will be involved in two seminars. One of them will be on the Cultivate Church Planting program that I've been involved in developing, and the other one will be on how preaching can function in creating a gospel culture. If you're interested in knowing more about that Cultivate Church Planting program, make sure to check out the previous episode with Kellen Criswell that talks about that. And if you are interested in what exactly we mean by the term gospel culture, then check out the previous episode that had Tim Chaddick and I talking about that topic. For more information on the conference and to register, go to conference.calvarychapel.com. I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and I'll be back at the end with a few closing words. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Pastor Nick Cady, and I am joined today by Dean and Sarah from Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, Dean, thanks for being on here. Hey, great to be with you. Dean, would you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, your current ministry? Yes, I'm actually a pastor in my hometown, so pretty neat to be a chance to minister where I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, the capital city of Florida, also home to Florida State University, uh, so a college and government town. I planted City Church 15 years ago with some friends, about 20 people in my parents' living room. So it's been a really neat story of just seeing what God has done in our community through our church since then. My wife and I have been married for 18 years. We met on a blind date, and this was pre-social media. It's like a real blind date. Uh, I got wow. set up by a friend and have three kids. Uh, 15, 11, and 7, and that's boy, boy, girl. So life in Tallahassee is great. And uh, we have Mission Field here, just like our listeners do in their locations, and I try to be faithful to it. Cool. So Tallahassee, I've been to Florida, of course, but the, here's the thing I always hear about Florida, that Florida is the only state where the further north you go, the more southern it gets. Is that That's an absolute fact. That's, that's completely fact. true. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, so my house is about as the crow flies, maybe 15 miles from the Georgia. So it's definitely much more of a southern influence than the rest of the state where people who live there, Miami, Tampa, Orlando, are from families that moved down from New York City and the northern cities. So the culture there is much more similar to that than it is the South. But the handle where I live is definitely a more Southern culture. Now, Tallahassee, just listeners have a context, Tallahassee is a little bit of a hodgepodge because with mm -hmm. state government and university and a little bit of Southern culture, we have a little bit of everything because people come to Tallahassee from the rest of the state for work and for school. Yeah. How big is Tallahassee? It's about 300,000 people and we have no suburbs. It's just one town. There's nothing around it but woods. So it's just mm -hmm. one town. So there's nothing like, there's not a... I know you're in Boulder. There's not like a Arvada or a Littleton or it's just Tallahassee. There's nothing like around Denver or anything like that, like people might be used to. So that's, that's what we have here. That's interesting. So let's talk about your book, Dean. You wrote a book called Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. And 
from what I understand, this book was written in response to some of the pushback that's come towards the purity culture movement that took place like late 90s, early 2000s. Yes. And I grew up right in the middle of it. I'm a child of the 90s, went to high school in the 90s. I'd say mid 90s when it was at its peak. In the late 90s, Joshua Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, was a big part of that. The True Love Waits movement was the bell ringer, or the big goal was to get you to sign a card where you committed to save yourself as they, for your future spouse. And since then, there have been years later, looking back on history, there had, recent history, uh, there's been a lot of angst towards that era, towards purity culture by a lot of people who are my age now, looking back and reflecting on it. Even the New York Times has had an opinion piece written about uh, this thing they refer to as purity culture. We didn't call it purity culture back then. We didn't know that was the name of it. It was just kind of part of what you did if you were in youth ministry. It was just you were encouraged to buy a purity ring. And the whole idea was that one day you would you'd wear it until you got married. You'd give it to your spouse. It was really quite the idea. I, but there was a lot of flaws in the movement. And so, I, so I'm asking the question in the book, and I'm just asking the question then going forward with it. So let's say that, and we'll talk about this, let's say that everything that the current reflective looking back world is saying about purity culture negatively is 100% accurate and 100% true. Let's say no pushback, they are completely right in their analysis. Does that change the fact that God has a clear design for sexuality mm. and a clear design for marriage? And the answer to that is no. So I'm afraid that we've almost like almost overcorrected in terms of this kind of angst towards something that wasn't always handled the best way. I, I don't really fully get the old cliche, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think I know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what this is an example of. So I, I want to say, look, God still has a very clear design of the scriptures, and it's our job as followers of Christ to make sure that we're clear on the design that he's given us and in terms of how we think and how we live. Excellent. Yeah. I was just thinking, I, let's see, I grew up, let's see, I graduated high school 2001, so I might be a few years behind you, but not far. And I definitely remember a lot of this stuff. I, I started walking with the Lord when I was 16 and I went to an Acquire the Fire conference. I remember, oh, yeah. I'm sure you remember sure. those. Yeah. And so I remember Rebecca St. James was at this one and she had this hit song like about, I will wait for you. Yeah. I talked about that song in the book. Do you? Okay, cool. Yeah. Here was the thing though. Okay, so I came into the Christian subculture kind of late, right? Like I was 16. I hadn't grown up in it. My church wasn't really into the Christian subculture thing. They're really doing their own thing, teaching the Bible and all that. But then I, I would go to these places where I'd like encounter, oh, this is what like other Christians are into. And I remember listening to K-Wave, which was one of the reasons why I hesitated to be a Christian because I was afraid I would have to listen to K-Wave. But I was like, okay, even on K-Wave, right? Sometimes there was like a song about Jesus, but then there was like a song about not having sex. So <laughs> I, I was legitimately confused by it. Like I, I would legitimately say that it struck me as I was like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. But it sometimes seemed like the emphasis on purity culture was to the neglect of gospel preaching and Bible teaching. So I am curious to hear, I think that's cool that you're saying, okay, maybe there was some legitimate stuff that they got wrong. Tell me about that. I want to know what yeah. was some of the stuff that maybe is legitimate pushback. And we have a similar story. I was not raised in mainline, Pro or I was made in main, was raised, excuse me, mainline Protestant. And that's definitely not part of the Christian subculture. 
So when I came to faith, I got exposed to all these things as an older high school student. And it was quite mm -hmm. the uh, culture shock at first. But I thought this is what you do. If you're going to be a serious Christian, you engage in these sort of meetings and activities and rallies. So I want to make sure I'm clear that I do believe, I did a lot of reflecting on the movement because of the book. I'm not just going to throw a book out there without revisiting it and, and really thinking through it. And I think the motives were pure. I think the the task was genuine, what they're trying to accomplish. I think we have to remember that if we're going back to the 90s, these were parents who came of age often in the late 60s and early 70s during the kind of love, which basically meant sex everywhere, that kind of Woodstock culture, hippie culture, all of that. So maybe the ones that came to faith were trying to prevent their own children from going down that free love kind of road. So I think the motives were pure. I want to be fair as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, to not demonize those people and be thankful for the efforts they didn't make. Here's where I think it went wrong. I believe that the motive and the reason that was presented for remaining sexually pure was off base. What we regularly heard about was it all in the context of your future spouse. So you were told, Nick, you don't want to be the one on your honeymoon who didn't save yourself. Yeah, and it created this, this strange hypothetical, almost idolatry of this future person. And it created these almost like little Pharisees and legalists. And then after that, a lot of shame if you were the person who happened to have messed up. When the motivation should have been God's glory. Like God's design, our love for the one who loved us first, right? Wanting to follow the one who gave his life for us. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, he died so that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Like the gospel story should have been our motivation, but instead it was, Nick, you don't want to be the one that messes up your honeymoon. So naturally, when you're 16 years old, you're not thinking about your future spouse. You're thinking about what you're doing Friday night, how you get your homework assignment done. What are my friends doing this weekend? Uh, and... If you did get into any kind of sexual sin, which is sadly common for a high school teenage student in this, especially now in the sexually charged world, the mindset was almost like, oh, I already messed up. So I've already, I've already been the one who has failed here. So one of two things, I guess I'll just keep doing it because why does it matter? And two, now I don't deserve, I don't deserve someone unless they have done that too. Um, in college. I knew a girl who was dating a really great guy. They both loved Jesus. They born again, believers in Christ. And she wound up breaking up with him and she could break up them for any reason she wants. They weren't married. But the reason she broke up with him was because she found out that when he was younger in high school, that he was involved sexually with a girl at school. Hmm. This guy since then following Jesus, loves the Lord, repented of his sin, taking purity seriously. Their dating relationship was very pure. But in her eyes, she came up from that movement. She deserved someone who had not done that before. And when in the world as Christians do we say things like, I deserve? Right. You know, just little gospel, little grace. I think those things were really missing in the movement. And, and I, if we could go back in time, I wish they would have been unashamed, like they were, of God's design, but to make it really about God's design, mm -hmm. not about this pressure on you and create this utopia overhyped honeymoon that almost set people up for disappointment in their life rather than just celebrating what it looks like to grow in marriage and to one day be there and to live in God's design as faithful disciples. So I think they really missed the boat on those things and we're seeing the damage because of it. Yeah, that's really insightful. Another part of it that comes up as you're mentioning, just talking, I was thinking, where is the place in this for the person who is called the singleness, like 
we read about in the New Testament or like Jesus who we follow, it seems that the whole purpose of this is to present your future spouse, like you said, a obsession, idolatry with the idea of future marriage and honeymoon. What about the person who's not called to that? What about the person who, uh, it doesn't seem to present them with much, much of a vision either. I'd agree with that. And not just called to, maybe they just haven't had an opportunity to be married yet. Mm -hmm. They haven't met the person. They desire to be married, but haven't met that person. What I'm seeing are Christians that are like, I'm 35 years old and single. I guess by now, God doesn't really care if I do that or not. Do I get a mulligan <laughs> because I'm 40 or, uh, and, and again, it made marriage, uh, marriage matters a lot. Marriage is a very big deal. Obviously mm -hmm. in the scriptures, a huge part of the biblical story, but it almost made marriage ultimate. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a problem because Jesus was not married. Paul was not married to, to our knowledge. And I, I believe that. We almost told singles, sorry, you just have to sit out over here and just store up your feelings and your hormones and your passions. When instead we should either be saying this, that singles, people who are single matter to God just as much. They should really immerse themselves just like a married person in community and relationships. And also they should not feel any shame and desiring to be married, to go forward in marriage and to pursue marriage, not in some kind of psychotic way, uh, but just in a way, yeah, I do desire. There's no shame in wanting to be married and there's no shame in desiring to not be married based on maybe a call to singleness. So I also think it's important that we allow single people to understand that they're not in some kind of exception clause for sexual ethics. The exact same sexual ethics in the Bible apply to me as a married man, as mm. I do to a single Christian. <laughs> what do I mean by that? God has created sexual relations, sexual intimacy to be shared between a husband and a wife. So that's the same for me as a married man. I don't have the right to go sleep with whoever I want. At the same time, a single person, God has created sex for them to be shared between a husband and a wife. So we need to make sure that we're in the same boat here in terms of what God has prescribed for us. Just how it's going to be carried out is going to be a little bit different. I saw that Joshua Harris had recently gone back on his, or he had apologized. That's what it was. He apologized for writing that book. I think he had asked for it to be removed from you know, different publishing and distribution centers and things like that. What, why do you think that is? I don't that, know that... Josh personally. I've met him before, but I don't know him personally. So I'm not going to speak for him, but look at the trajectory of where else he has gone theologically. I think his regret for writing that book, I, again, I, I understand, I want to give the disclaimer that I am like taking the liberty here. Uh, and if I'm being unfair, please let me know. But I think that his reason for that has as much to do with his current theology as mm. he did the missteps of that book. But what that book really did was, again, it created legal, kind of a legalism. And, and it painted marriage to almost be this like untouchable utopia that isn't really the reality of two sinners coming together and trying to live their lives together for God's glory. And your honeymoon not be this perfect ideal situation. And again, marriage is good. Marriage existed before the fall. God made marriage to be good. It's not marriage that's the problem. It's us and our brokenness and, and our rebellion against God that's the problem. And so I, I think that Harris just created this scenario where it just sounded like someone who had never had a girlfriend before. So he's going to tell everybody they shouldn't have one either. That's how it came across to a lot of people. Well, Let's say and, it was, that's how it came across. And wasn't he, I don't know, I don't want to make stuff up, but wasn't he very young when he wrote this book? Oh, very young. Yeah, very yeah. young. Yeah. Okay, so now, okay, there's been a pushback recently against people maybe who grew up in that and then came out of it. What do you think has the pushback led to practically? 
I, I think it has led to practically a de-emphasis on sexual ethics, maybe an embarrassment towards them. Even if you do affirm what the Bible says regarding sexuality, either just being quiet on it or even moving from it altogether. How many people that grew up in evangelical homes in the 90s are now cohabitating or they're fully in same-sex relationships or they affirm them altogether. They've been divorced multiple times. I, I, I think we've seen a complete rebellion against it rather than just going, hey, that didn't go so well. I, that, but I think the, to some people's defense, it doesn't excuse sin and denying what God's made clear. But to some people's defense, I think they did receive a lot of shame from the movement and a lot of guilt that they never actually dealt with and still need to deal with the cross of Jesus Christ, you know, who removes our shame and removes our guilt. Uh, so I, I think you're seeing some people who are I think it was Rick Warren who said that hurt people. So I think yeah. you're seeing some people who really were hurt by the movement and now are like on a quest to just be anti everything evangelical, like in their hurt and in their pain to do that. But others, I think just completely went the, a different direction and swung the door the complete opposite way as if God's design doesn't matter. That's why I said earlier, okay, let's say they're right about everything that purity culture got wrong. That does not change the fact that God has given us a clear design for his glory and also for our good. And we can't be ashamed of that. I mean, the sexual ethics of the Bible are as clear as love. They're as clear as do not steal. They're as clear as for God so loved the world and created the world. I and mean, it's, it's as clear as Jesus walking on water. It's as clear as it possibly can be. And it's our job uh, to, again, respond to that by wanting to follow Jesus and to be his disciples. And that includes obeying everything he's commanded us, as the Great Commission says, not just begrudgingly, but because it is for our good. But sometimes as disciples, it is begrudgingly. It is a pick up your cross. There is a, and in our fallen world, there is an effort that has to be made responding to the grace of God, because there's something in me naturally. And I think all people, because it goes back to Genesis, that there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. And the other thing we often believe is that to go around God for all the things I'm looking for in my life, happiness, joy, fulfillment, pleasure, meaning, all those things, rather than actually to God. And I fear that those who have completely abandoned what the scriptures say about these things have, uh, have given into those lies. And I really hurt for them. And I think we're honestly in a little bit of a crisis, especially in a young adult world on social media and a lot of my gen our generation, especially was a little past young adulthood, no offense, that's, <laughs> that mm -hmm. is in a bad place. So we need a remnant of people who are unashamed, not just of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also what God has said and what God has given us in the scripture. It, it reminds me of the original lie in the Bible, right? It isn't the original lie that God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's withholding something from you that would be pleasurable for you. And in order to get that thing, which is good, you have to disobey. Ex yeah, exactly. And how's that? And I don't mean this in a snarky way, but it's in an honest way. How's that working for everybody? Look at the sexual brokenness in our world. It's rampant. It's hmm. everywhere. And we're mad at purity culture. What really I think we need to surrender our lives, not to purity culture, that's a man-made thing, but to surrender to the Lord and, and believe what he has given us actually is good. Let me ask you this. Why did you, why are you passionate about this? I hear some of what that is probably in what you're saying so far, but tell us a little bit about the story. Like how did it come about that you decided I'm going to write an entire book on this? I, I kept seeing what seemed like Christians either being apologetic and I don't mean in a defending the faith kind of way, like in a sorrowful way, uh, about the sexual ethics of the Bible, or I've seen uh, churches just even that agree and, and, and undersmit themselves under the lordship of Christ and his word, but just avoid it altogether. And, and then I've seen also just Christians who just caved 
and, and just abandon what God has said. And I said, man, we got to talk about this. And I write books. I'm a regular guy. I write books for regular people. It's not a seminary book. It is saying, hey, let's real talk about real things going on, about a real world. Oh, this is a big issue right now. And also, I really want people to live in God's design for them. So I think it's best for all of us. And I really, just from a pragmatic standpoint, I, if God is the creator and he has created sex and created marriage, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I, I want to listen to that guy or listen to that one who made those things. So I, I think that as well, I, I just keep seeing sexual brokenness over and over again and what it leads to and just the havoc that it wreaks. And, and, and that doesn't ha- here's the thing. It doesn't have to be this way, mm. but God has given us a design. So my hope is we can recover and pursue what it is that he has given us. I remember in the early days of YouTube, seeing that clip of Matt Chandler, his famous talk, Jesus wants the rose and finding that to be, man, it, isn't that it? Isn't that the gospel? And so just in light of that thought, which in a way was a little bit of a response against some of the bad parts of purity culture, that the idea of shaming people who had messed up, let's say, what are your thoughts? What would you say purity means for a person who has experienced sexual assault or who has already crossed the line into sexual sin in their past? Yeah, I would say one, it means embracing the one and surrendering to the one who has only ever been, the only one who's ever actually perfectly been pure, that being Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 2, he says he's not not ashamed of us. So don't be ashamed of yourself when Jesus isn't ashamed of you if you're in Christ. So I think we need to start believing our own theology, like for ourselves, not just for everybody else. And then I really do think it means recovering and pursuing God's design, now living in it. And believing that here's God's design in general, it is this, that sex is not for ready people or in love people or mature people. It's for married people. Mm. And that God has clearly defined marriage between a man and a woman. And that it's never just sex. He calls it a one fleshy. That's more than sex, but it's definitely not less. And Jesus echoes that in Matthew 19 when he talks about marriage. He references Genesis as historic. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 in Ephesians 5 does the exact same thing. And I think our culture knows that it's never just sex. We, we know that. We just don't oftentimes want to admit that. So I would just encourage the person to go ahead and now live in this design and, and to embrace what God has given you and, and to realize that God has given us marriage. And that's what he has for his people, for his glory and for our good. But I think it begins with understanding what Christ has done for you. He does not see you as someone who has failed miserably. Uh, he sees you as someone who he has made new, who died for, who he purchased our ransom. And I want to really believe that. So a purity culture without a clear gospel is not a culture I'm interested in at all. I want to mm. be part of a gospel culture that mm-hmm. believes here's what Jesus did for us. Now let's go live for him by his grace and for his glory. And that is definitely not less than honoring God with our sexuality. Yeah, that's great. What advice would you have for someone uh, questioning whether or not their significant other is the one that they should marry. So I think that I, I when when you are married, I'm gonna back, I'm gonna work backwards for a minute. When you are married, I always tell folks, I'm not sure who first said this. It's not an original thought with me, but if you want to know if the person you're married to is the right person, look at your marriage license and see the name on there, and then you'll know. Again, an exception to that would be if someone's in an abusive relationship, they're threatened. Those all the disclaimers. But I think the way you would know if someone is right for you, honestly, I think the one question we have to ask is: Does this person know Jesus? Mm-hmm. And if they do, I think God gives us all this freedom 
to make that decision. I think it's a choice, but I don't think there is one person out there for everyone uh, in terms of like that. If you don't, if you weren't on the Mayflower, if your great grandmother, great, great grandfather was on the Mayflower at the right time, then you missed the window for that person's great, great grandson. I don't really think that's how it all works, but I, I think that there's a choice. Um, and I think that's actually, Michael, that's not very romantic. I think it's actually very romantic. Because my wife could have married a lot of people. She, mm. she could have, she had dated a lot of guys, but she could have married a whole lot of people, but she decided to marry me. Mm -hmm. And I could have married a whole lot of people, but I decided to marry her. So marriage is a choice. And I think it's a beautiful part that we're deciding for this. But I think the one real parameter is what does this person believe about Jesus Christ? And if that is in play, I think any two people regardless of their background, their preferences, their personalities can make it work and not just make it work, but actually flourish if they live their lives by God's design, loving their wife like Christ of the church. But that's taking place. I think any couple can be right for each other. Yeah. Back in the nineties, like what, what my experience was that there was this pushback against the kind of cultural expression of dating, which is yeah. not just that we're trying to get to know each other, but we're test driving the car. We're trying on the shoes to see if we want to wear them for a long time or if we want to buy the car. And, and I can understand some of the pushback that some of it's probably warranted, right? That some people were acting as if they were like acting as if they were married during a dating relationship or in their dating relationship, they weren't being pure. But I remember the struggle that I felt as a young person was like, okay, if Christians aren't supposed to date each other, I hadn't actually read the book. I just knew the title, which told me a lot. Well, okay, if Christians aren't supposed to date each other, then what are you supposed to do? And I remember this one time I, I was asked to give a well-known pastor a ride. It was like a four-hour drive. Ten minutes into the drive, he asked me, hey, do you have a girlfriend? Like It was like he asked my name, and that was like question number two. Do you have a girlfriend? And I said, yeah, I was 18. And he goes, are you going to marry her? And I said, I don't know. And he said, then you better decide right now. Like you need to either marry her or you need to break up. And he you're said, like, I'm 18, man, chill out. I know a little <laughs> bit, but then you know what he said? He goes, you're wasting her time. That's not honoring or respectful. If you're just dragging her along, there's probably something to say for that. And you know what? In the end I did break up with her and it was one of the best things I ever did. Yeah. Ended up getting to know my wife, but there was this pressure in part of this culture that I was in that, um, since we don't date, here's what you do. You get to know the person. Do you know Jesus? Yes. You know, Jesus. Yes. Uh, tick all the boxes. Okay. Then we're going to get married. And it was like this thing, even this guy, he even told me, I met my wife on Sunday and by Tuesday I asked her to marry me and we've been married for 30 years or whatever. And then so in some church cultures, this manifested itself in a lot of people getting married really fast. And unfortunately, I know that a lot of those relationships didn't survive. So can you maybe give me and our listeners some advice? Like, is there somewhere in between? There is, but I would add that I think those marriages could have survived if they would have done things by God's way. Mm -hmm. In terms of how they treated each other, how they served each other, unselfishness. Yeah, I, I do think those things could have survived. Um, I'm a big proponent of getting married young. That doesn't mean I'm a, I'm a proponent of getting married three days after you meet. <laughs> those are two different things. So here's what makes dating complicated, besides just all the things that makes dating complicated. What makes it for the Christian is that Scripture doesn't talk about it. Mm. So that doesn't make it bad. It just makes it neutral. But in our culture that we live in, the way you meet your future spouse 
99.9999% of the time is through dating. So we participate in that cultural phenomena and practice that we call dating. Again, that's nothing wrong with that. That's just neutral. So we got to figure out in a kind of secular designed model called dating, how do we live for Christ in that? And I, I think that is complicated, but I don't think there's one clear cut. It has to be this way. You're not doing it right outside of the purity side of it. So I would say for people that kind of the middle ground is to not freak out and also to not take it so casually either. To know it's a, it's a person who has emotions and has feelings. And at the same time, I'm just seven or we just went out a few times and had a nice time in college together and just pump the brakes and not have to feel like that everything about yourself and about all your dreams has to be shared the first day. And then I would say, as it gets to be a little more comfortable, Hey, I like you, you like me, we're hanging out. We've been out like four times now. I can see this lead to something. I would say then that if you're in high school, again, just enjoy each other, have fun, have what I call no regrets dating. No regrets dating. Yeah, if you break up because you're human beings, someone will be emotional, someone will be sad, other feelings hurt, but no regrets in terms of how you give yourself to that person, not just physically, but also emotionally. I don't act like you're married when you're not. Um, but if you're a little bit older, and by that I mean at, at an age where marriage could be a real possibility for you, then I would say make your intentions clear. Again, not the first date, not the second time you go for a walk, the, the first time you get frozen yogurt. I, I don't mean that, but make your intentions clear. Hey, just so you know, I'm, I like you. I really enjoy being around you, but I have no desire to get married or anything serious until I finish my PhD. And that's five years away. Well, you know what? That's a noble thing to say because the other person might be saying, well, I want to get married pretty soon. Like I want a date to get married. The person knows they can make a decision then. Uh, so I think making, making your intentions clear is, is really important for Christians, especially as we want to think of the other person as more important than ourselves. That's good. Would you say, so being sexually pure, what does that look like in marriage versus in singleness? In what yep. ways is it the same? What ways is it different? I, I think it's very similar. And the fact that the one difference would be, Paul said, you know, because of all the temptation of sexual morality in the world, that you should have a spouse where you can act that out. That's not why you get married. That's a great benefit of being married. So I would say that the design is the same and the calling and the command is the same. And that is that there's only one person in this entire universe that I am by God's word permitted by his grace and by his glory to have sexual relations with. And that's my wife. For the single person, that's the exact same thing. The one person in the world they're permitted to is their future husband or wife. So in that case, we're bound by the same expression of that. For the single person, it's just more complicated because again, they do not have a place to carry out those desires. I do as a married man. So I think then it really is like either moving towards marriage or towards just like really being in a place uh, in your singleness where you're content with that and are able to, in community, live your life with others for the glory of God in a way that honors him uh, with every area of your life, including your sexual. Would you have any kind of encouraging words for those who, let's say, they want to be married and yet there's no prospect of that? They want to be pure and honor God. What kind of encouragement or advice would you give to them? I would say one stay the course. It follow Jesus is always worth it. Like he really is better. And I would say also, they don't think that God is like holding out on you or neglecting you. That's not what's taking place right now. Or for whatever reason, you just don't have the opportunity to meet that person yet or to seal the deal with that person. 
And, and I would just encourage you to one, be unashamed and unapologetic about desiring if you want to get married to meet somebody and, and to look for avenues. I'm not saying you're desperate. I'm not saying anything like that, but just look for avenues where you can do that. You know, get plugged into a church where that's possible or, or go to a, a trusted friend and have them set you up or, and also give people a chance. But the perfect person does not exist. Give folks a chance. And so I think sometimes we almost shoot down great opportunities because he doesn't meet our exact profile of how, you know, someone should be. And I don't say throw that stuff up and say, do they love Jesus? And can I see myself enjoying life and, and, and being in a relationship with this person for a long time? That's my advice. Awesome. Could you give maybe just a final word of summary yeah. or a, a thought that you would want to let people leave with? Yeah, sure. God has a clear design. I'm telling you, it is the design for marriage between a man or for sex being in the confines of marriage and marriage being between a man and a woman is as clear in the Bible as any other thing. So why would we trust that Jesus rose from the grave? The only reason we know that is the Bible told us so. Why would we trust that salvation comes through Christ alone? Why would we trust that God works all things together for our good? Why would we trust that he's going to return one day for his church and not trust him about what he says about sexuality? So before it's anything else, the trusting God, it's a biblical authority issue. So just know if you're throwing out those things as a cultural pressure or you say, oh, it's 2022, we still have this conversation. Know that you're not just throwing out some sort of what you believe to be oppressive or prudish kind of idea. You're th throwing out the Bible. And I just don't know how else to be more clear about that. God has given us his design for his glory and for our good. And if we want to flourish our relationship with Christ, it's definitely more than how we live our lives and considering sexuality, but it's not less than that. Mm -hmm. And God calls us to participate with him and his design as his people and live for his glory. So I, I just want to say, be unapologetic and unashamed about what he has said. Awesome. Thanks, Dean. Hey, yeah. Dean, if people want to find out more about your book or if they want to find more about you personally and other things that you're up to, where can they do that? You know, I appreciate that. I've written several books. Would love for you to check them out. Uh, anywhere books are sold, you know, online or in stores. And my name on social media, on Twitter and Instagram is just my name, Dean, and then in Sarah, I-N-S-E-R-R-A. And I love to interact with people via those mediums. And yeah, I would love to hear from you and talk about these kind of things. Awesome. Thanks, Dean. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to be on Theology for the People. I'm for the people and for theology. So let's go. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. I would love to hear feedback from you on this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to. And if you would like to interact, I would love to do that. You can contact me via the contact form on my website, nickkd.org. I've had lots of people write in with suggested topics for both the podcast and the blog. So I'd love to hear from you and interact with you in that way. I've got some upcoming episodes with Mike Neglia and Michael Payne. So if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, make sure to do that so those new episodes will be dropped right into your podcast app as soon as they come out. Until next time, God bless you.